Hi, it's Bob Safian. You've been hearing me as the host of Rapid Response in this feed for a few years now with short newsy interviews alongside the deeper dives of Masters of Scale. Well, I'm excited to share that Rapid Response is expanding into its own feed. We'll be putting out shows twice a week, focusing on the urgent issues that business leaders are dealing with in real time. So search for Rapid Response in your podcast player and subscribe to make sure you get all our episodes. I'll see you on the other side. Imagine you're a kid visiting a library for story time. Once you get past the stuffy, dewy decimalization of the grown-up shelves, you find yourself in the wonder-filled world of the children's section. There are dragons painted on the wall. Plush owls are posted on tables. And Saturn hangs from the ceiling. As you gather around with the other kids, your excitement builds. Are you about to hear a heartwarming tale about a hungry caterpillar? Or perhaps you're going to launch into a space rocket adventure. Or maybe you're going to shiver your timbers on a jaunty pirate adventure. Feed him to the sharks. So imagine how you react when you learn that this story time is going to be all about financial literacy. That may sound like a hard sell to a bunch of hyperactive six-year-olds, but for one superstar entrepreneur, there was a finance-shaped hole in the world of children's literature that he felt compelled to fill. There are so many great books that talk about getting to know your feelings and the differences of others, and there were no books about financial intelligence or entrepreneurship, so I just figured, why not me? That's Damon John, the founder of the game-changing streetwear brand, FUBU, and one of the original sharks on ABC's Emmy Award-winning Shark Tank. Most of the challenges we have come from the lack of money and the lack of information or what to do with money. He'd need to tell a simple, relatable story to capture kids' imaginations. So he looked to his own childhood for inspiration. really rooted in a version of Damon at 20 years old. And a version of Damon at six years old. I did sell pencils when I was young and stuff like that to make money. My passion was hip hop. Damon titled his book, Little Damon Learns to Earn telling the story of a six-year-old who creates a t-shirt business so he can buy a poster of his favorite hip-hop artist. At its heart is a simple refrain that every little kid can get on board with. To get kids to participate in it, studies have shown that they feel very strong about counting to five. I can count really fast to five. One, two, One, two three, four, five. So when you see the Chris dollar bill laid out and you're reading that in the classroom or the mom or dad is reading it to their kid, they go, one, two, three. I know you're thinking about the count right now. Count right now. One, two, three, four, five. I know you're thinking about the count right now. One, two, three. It's all, you know, there's certain methods and ways to communicate with children that are easier because they're absorbing information in a certain way. 
The aim of this simple idea is to give kids a lifelong interest in building their financial literacy. And there's something that even the most seasoned leaders can learn from keeping simplicity at the heart of their businesses. Every single business has to have clarity and simplicity. And so, you know, when you say Nike, just do it, food before us, bias, White Castle, what you crave, TNT, we know drama, TBS, very funny. You know that you are getting to the core of something. That's why they say the great people know how to do what they call a elevator pitch, 90 seconds. You should be able to convey whatever you do on the back of a business card. So you better either have a huge ass business card, write very small, or you get it. Put it in a couple of words. You got to convey what you do. There's nothing more important than simplicity and clarity. The challenge is keeping things simple, but not letting that keep you behind the times. I know you're thinking about the count right now. That's why I believe if you want your company to stand the test of time, you need to keep things simple without letting them stay the same. You gotta have incredible talent at every position. It's like this huge push. There are fires burning when you're going home. Can you believe it? Such an idiot. And then you go back to, this is totally gonna be amazing. There are so many easy ways. So, 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 I have no idea what to do. Sorry, we made a mistake. But you have to time it right. Oops. Working at a three-bedroom apartment. Stuff that just seems absolutely nutballs. Ten years later, we're like, well, that's just how you do it. We haven't made just how you do it. This is Masters of Scale. We'll start the show in a moment. After a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. I woke up in the middle of the night because I had this nightmare that we were front page news that we've done the stupidest mistake of our life by making this pivot. <laughs> That's Aparna Saran, Chief Marketing Officer for Capital One Business. And she's recalling a moment from her previous position at Capital One when she was heading up a team designing a new business card. We had just made the decision to go all in and sunset the prior version of the product, which was honestly the cash cow for our business. When we made that decision within a senior leadership meeting, as someone who had been on the journey to build this out for five plus years, it was really exciting. But by the time the weekend hit, I started to feel the responsibility and the pressure. We are taking this big bet on something that I've built. Perhaps you've been there. You've made a pivotal decision and then panic sets in. How would Aparna calm her butterflies and steer her team through this pivot? We'll find out later in the show. It's all part of the Refocus Playbook, a special series where Capital One Business highlights stories of business owners and leaders using one of Reed's theories of entrepreneurship. Today's Playbook Insight, have multiple plan Bs. I'm Reed Hoffman, co-founder of LinkedIn, partner at Greylock, and your host. And I believe if you want your company to stand the test of time, you need to keep things simple without letting them stay the same. Stop for a moment to ponder this simple yet vitally important question. What's the greatest pizza topping of all time? Is it the unadorned understatement 
of the margarita, the perennially appealing pepperoni, the indulgent depths of a Chicago deep pan, or perhaps something more avant-garde like a duck liver and raspberry supreme. It's a contentious question and one I don't expect to solve here, mainly because there is no right answer. Here's why. The beauty and essence of pizza lies in how it's a simple, timeless idea that has been iterated upon throughout the ages, from the flatbreads of ancient Rome to the emergence of its modern incarnation in 19th century Naples and right through to today. This idea of simplicity leading to longevity also applies to your product, business, and brand. I wanted to talk with Eileen Fisher about this because she's made clarity and simplicity the hallmark of her namesake clothing brand since she founded it in 1984. Eileen's long-lived label has maintained its relevance over four decades of changing fashions, shifting and evolving with the times while still staying true to core essence. Eileen is also one of the early pioneers in the concept of namesake apparel businesses, employee ownership, sustainability, and social responsibility. The Eileen Fisher brand has made its name for its minimalist garments that can be mixed and matched to create simple, stylish outfits. Yet, its understated ethos has its roots in the outlandish fashion trends of the 80s. Here's Eileen. The 80s, when I started, was a pretty um, crazy time. The clothes were kind of wild. Women wore, like, shoulder pads, and there was something extreme about a lot of it. I would go shopping and I would just be overwhelmed, finding a few things that I liked, but then how do they go together? It was just too much. At the time, there were two main options for buying clothes, the large department stores or small, exclusive boutiques. Big box outlets and, of course, online shopping were a thing of the future. Boutiques were interesting. I I could find some of what I wanted, but it was a search. It wasn't easy to find the simple things. In fact, Eileen didn't find a simple aesthetic in her search of the five boroughs. Instead, she took a trip to Japan, where Eileen came across a piece of clothing that altered her perspective on design. The whole aesthetic of Japan inspired me. The kinds of shapes and the fabrics they used, just the general simplicity of everything. Something about the kimono really fascinated me. I liked the timeless and the simplicity of it. You're likely familiar with the traditional kimono of Japan. It's an iconic T-shaped unisex garment that is often made from one piece of fabric. It's at once simple and elegant and long-lived, tracing its roots back to 8th century Japan. And in all that time, it has maintained its relevance. I liked the movement of the kimono. The way they draped, the lines, and the way they they moved and just fascinated me that fabric could do that. Eileen began to put the simplicity of the kimono together with the demands of modern fashion. I was also a little bit jealous of men because men had such a simple kind of system, a way of getting dressed. Simple shirts and simple pants and even dressing up with ties and shirts. I wanted to create this kind of a system. The idea isn't to just wear the same thing every day. 
but to have things that work easily together so that you can switch it up and dress it up and dress it down. This simple concept needed simple designs. It came to me in shapes, the flood pants, the little box top, these simple sort of architectural shapes was how it started to kind of land with me. I wanted to create these puzzle pieces. I often talk about how entrepreneurs are the only ones crazy enough to make a counterintuitive idea a reality. So it's important here to point out just how much Eileen's vision for clothing went against the prevailing fashions of the 80s. But she felt there was a huge unmet need for simple, unadorned clothing that could be effortlessly combined into different outfits. The first step in proving this was getting our idea out of her head and onto paper. There was just one problem. I don't really draw. I was making these random weird sketches, just fussing around a little and trying to think about it and how it might work. To anyone else, these doodles wouldn't have meant much, but they helped Eileen form a clear idea in her own mind of the clothes she wanted to make. Like a writer working on the first messy draft of a manuscript, this is an important initial step in building any company or product. Because if you don't have a clear idea of the business you want to build, you're more likely to trip over unexpected and complex problems down the line. Now, Eileen was ready to produce the first pieces in her new clothing line. It was a square top, almost like a box. And then the little flood pant, the little wide leg pant. And then there was a vest piece with a V-neck that just dropped over all of it. That was the first outfit grouping. I made them in three colors and you could mix and match them. Eileen took those first iterations of her simple idea to a boutique show. Eight small stores bought my clothes and they all said they sold. So it was an okay starting point, but I needed to do it better. Eileen took the feedback from those purchasers and iterated on her design, iterating without adding complexity. The fabric was a little too stiff for what I was trying to do. They also weren't right in terms of color. The colors I picked were too dark for spring at the moment. Then I went back to the next boutique show and got a different fabric, a little more drapey that was more appropriate for my shapes. People stood in line to write orders, and it was just an instant hit. Changing the clothing while still hewing to the idea of simplicity paid off. The orders totaled $40,000, far more than Eileen had hoped for. As the business grew, Eileen made sure to keep her focus on keeping her designs fresh without getting too far away from their core simplicity. I sold to these boutiques, and I did the boutique show and the coterie, these shows that happened in New York for small stores around the country, a few international stores. The designs were making Eileen Fisher a hit among the fashionistas who frequented boutiques. However, it wasn't playing so well with the department stores. Remember, this was a time when department stores were the big-scale opportunity. Department stores, they were just confused about us. We were too simple. Our clothes would sort of disappear or something in their stores, and they didn't quite understand it. Getting your clothing into department stores would help grow sales, awareness, and passion around her clothes. Nowadays, I'd expect Eileen to get around this roadblock by setting up an online store. But that wasn't an option 
back in the 1980s. However, Eileen had been quietly developing a way to sell clothes that circumvented the boutiques and the department stores. I had so many seconds and damages and samples that I couldn't sell, and it just seemed like a waste. And so I opened a tiny store on East 9th Street. Customers would just see the clothes in the window in this tiny little store and come in. I realized that I also had a retail business. The success of this small, out-of-the-way store selling damaged products gave Eileen the confidence for her next move. I just ran the numbers and figured out that we needed to sell about $3,000 worth of clothes a day. And I was like, well, we're already doing that on 9th Street. I think we should be able to do that on Madison Avenue. It seems like a simple move to make to open her own branded shop on New York's famed Madison Avenue. But it was also an astounding one for the times. In the 1980s, it was almost unheard of for a fashion designer to open their own store. I don't think I understood that it was unique for designers to be doing that. I don't think I understood that. So we opened a store on Madison Avenue and it was a huge hit. I remember customers like banging on the door, like pulling the door handle, trying to get in. (laughs) People stood in line to buy clothes and bought stacks of clothes and they were so excited. And I was like, wow, this works. Now, it's commonplace for brands from fashion, technology, and even cartoons to have their own stores. Think Burberry, Apple, or Hello Kitty. But at the time, opening her own store was a counterintuitive move. It also highlights something important to note. Keeping things simple does not mean doing things the same as everyone else. The popularity of Eileen's store had another effect. When we opened our own store, the department stores could see the whole. And I think the line is so much about the whole. It's like you're making a puzzle, but if you don't see the whole picture, you just see a few pieces, it's not so meaningful. So when they saw the whole and they saw customers standing in line and buying stacks of clothes, they were like, they still didn't get it, but they wanted a piece of it somehow. For the department stores, the success of the store was a simple demonstration of the scale potential of the Eileen Fisher line, so they made an offer. We need to open a whole department for you. We can't just bring in a rack of clothes. It needs to be a whole department so people would understand the concept. The store within a store is common now, but back then it was a rarity, especially for a little-known brand. And as the department store sales took off, so did the success of Eileen's branded stores seemed like the model worked, and so we opened a couple more in New York, and then D.C., Boston, Chicago. Every year, two, three, four more, something like that. And then the department stores started layering on. With a foothold in the market and a devoted customer base, Eileen was ready for the next scale step. Throughout the 1990s, Eileen opened stores across several cities, along with a new distribution center, and hired more than 300 employees. She had created a simple business model that worked. But as the company scaled, Eileen found it harder to keep true to the simplicity that had made her clothing line so successful. It was like we lost it and things just kind of went too far. We'll hear what happened next after the break. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. There was panic that set in that night because I didn't want to let people down. 
We're back with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was recalling the time she woke up in a cold sweat, terrified that the new product she had been working on might fail. So the next morning, she sat down and wrote an email. It was Sunday morning, and I said, you know what? I'm going to just like share this with my peers. It was very emotional. It was like sort of a cry for help. Aparna realized that if the new product didn't take off, she needed a plan B, preferably multiple plan Bs. I'm inviting them to be the thought partners so that we are mitigating as much risk as possible and we have contingency plans in place as we make this move. You write something like this and your heart is pounding, should I send this? It was a super vulnerable moment for me. But then I was like, I'm going to just send this. Like, what's the worst that will happen? It can't be worse than being on the front page of the newspaper. So she held her breath and hit send. What happened next would surprise even her. We'll hear about that later in the show. It's all part of Capital One Business's Spotlight on Business Leaders, following Reed's Refocus Playbook. We're back with Eileen Fisher. To see exclusive clips from my interview with Eileen, head over to the Masters Scale YouTube page. Before the break, we heard how Eileen built a clothing line focused on simplicity and began scaling her sales from boutique shops to department stores. The brand grew through the 1990s and by the end of the decade was shipping over 1 million items a year. In 1998, Eileen saw a way to further expand the scale of her simple outfits. We wanted to do higher end, a little more expensive fabrics and a little more beautiful kinds of things, and not just casual. At the time, it felt like the logical extension. Eileen Fisher had made a name for itself as casual and chic. Now Eileen wanted to add a little more emphasis on the chic, keeping it simple without letting the fashion line stay the same. However, Eileen was still determined to keep to the core simplicity that meant you could combine any Eileen Fisher piece with any other. We see the line as a whole. So the dressy things, the silk pieces go with the linens and the cottons and the wools, and it all goes to work or dresses up or dresses down. In keeping with the system of the Eileen Fisher ethos, the pieces all still need to mix and match into different outfit combinations. However, the department stores had a proposal that would add complexity. The department stores like to separate things. They proposed the idea that we would put the silks and the more expensive things in the higher-end department. So against her better judgment, Eileen made a separate range of clothing. So we tried to do what we call the New York line, the higher-end line. We had to recreate core pieces in higher-end fabrics and more casual things and some dressy things to go in the casual department. It's like we doubled the size of the line. Once again, the way department stores operated didn't fit with Eileen's vision. This time, though, she adjusted her business to match their way to try to capture the next scale wave. Because we had to ship to two different departments, it seemed like this massive expansion of the company. And we hadn't tested a lot of those fabrics, and they didn't work quite as well. And so we had just exploded. It was like we kind of lost it, and things just went too far. Eileen's move to appease the department stores badly backfired. This was a key inflection point. She had to return to the simplicity that made her clothing successful, 
without going backward. Whenever something feels wrong, I gather a group of people, like the core creatives in the company, and just start dialoguing. What is it? What do you think? What's not working here? The beauty of adding the silks and the dressier things is that they worked with the cottons and the knits and all the different pieces. The thing is a unit. How it works is how it works together. And we decided to abandon the New York line. Eileen's headlong rush into the New York fashion line will be familiar to anyone who's been caught up in the heady excitement of developing an idea and exploring new ways to push it forward. It's one of the most pervasive enemies of keeping things simple, mainly because it's fun. We get excited too, and we just keep building. Oh, we add another and another and another and another, and we forget that too many is too much, you know? I don't hold my ground, or we don't, as a team, say no. This helped Eileen formulate a rule for keeping her line simple while making sure it didn't become dated. I have this rule I call the 80-20 rule. In case that sounds familiar to you, it's another phrase for the Pareto rule. The principle that only around 20% of the things you can focus on as a leader accounts for 80% of your success. For example, that might mean 20% of your customers account for 80% of your profits. I like to keep 80% of the line consistent with where we've been. So repeating fabrics, repeating shapes. We even repeat colors so that there's newness that makes the line feel fresh But it's not all new, so that customers recognize their pieces and they can mix things. Notice how Eileen has repurposed the 80-20 rule as a way to gauge whether the company has strayed too far from its core simplicity, while also making sure they don't become stale. It's a rule she applies to whole product lines, but also to individual pieces. I remember one time going into Nordstrom's and seeing three different sets of stripes up on the wall, completely different that didn't go together. It was like, oh my God, we've gone nuts. So I've pulled back from prints and stripes for the moment and just like, let's stay with solids. Let's use texture. And I'm sure we'll do a few stripes here and there again. Don't tell my people that yet. <laughs> By creating strategic anchors like the 80-20 rule and the concept team, Eileen keeps her whole team focused on staying true to simplicity. What's the essence of this thing that we're trying to do? How do we come back, focus on the most important things? What are the things we love the most? Even now, today, our 20 top fabrics are our 20 top fabrics, and they work, and we know how they work, and our customers love them. Eileen's effort to keep doing these simplicity gut checks brings to mind another master of simplicity, Kevin Systrom, founder of Instagram. When we started Instagram, when we wrote out our values, the first one on the list is keep it simple. (laughs) We went from solving three or four things to solving one really well. And we saw that payoff in spades. And I think the hard part is when you grow a service and let's say you have hundreds of millions of people using it, you have varying use cases, you have varying stakeholders. Some are businesses, some are celebrities, some are video stars, and some are creatives you have pets on Instagram, right? Like, how do you keep it simple when you have so many people use it? So Kevin thought long and hard about adding new features, and we'd only do so if there was a clear case for them. 
often that meant spotting any interesting or unexpected ways people were using Instagram. So when we added video to Instagram, that was a big move. That's an evolution of how people were already using it. Stories, same thing. Messaging, people do it all the time in comments. So adding complexity is okay as long as you don't add orthogonal use cases that feel totally unrelated. When we do that, we typically launch separate apps or we consider doing that. Not to just like not build features. I think it's important just to think about the number of use cases that you have and ask yourself, are you keeping those in a limited set? Both Eileen and Kevin know how easy it is to lose sight of simplicity and get mired in complexity. This can quickly kill what customers love about your product. Back to Eileen's story. In the late 90s, the company's success attracted outside attention from investors and groups that wanted to help take the company public. We thought about it and we put together our business plan, what we thought would be a good growth plan over the next five years. The reaction we got from the people who wanted to help us go public was our growth plans were not aggressive enough that we were not going to be interesting in the public market. Eileen faced another significant choice. She could amplify their growth projections to entice investors, but at the risk of compromising on the simplicity at the core of her product. I just couldn't see the advantage. And I also had been warned by others that when you start to have to perform quarterly, you start to have to make too many compromises, do things you don't really want to do. I wanted to do it my way. The things Eileen really wanted to do went way beyond her vision for the product. They extended to the impact she wanted to have on how she ran the company and how it impacted society and the environment. Sometimes, like, I wanted to give to women's organizations or I wanted the employees to have good programs and good benefits and profit sharing. And I didn't want to be questioned about those things. For Eileen, profit sharing and employee ownership seemed like the simplest and most obvious way to make a business that could stand the test of time and changing fashions. So I'm from a family of seven kids, you know, and I grew up and it was always about sharing. And so as the business started to become more profitable, we shared profits according to how much we made. It just seemed like the right thing to do. Profit sharing is still a minority practice today. But back in the late 90s, when Eileen was still considering an IPO, it's the kind of plan that would have sent investors fleeing. But with investor considerations out of the way, Eileen was able to lean into her vision. So in 2005, Eileen brought in an employee stock ownership plan. I thought, that sounds consistent with my values, what I care about. And I actually think we should have a law that forces every company to share 10% of their profits with their employees. I just think that would make a huge difference. Co-ownership is something I believe in very strongly. It's one of the things that also a bunch of uh, the vast majority of the tech companies do as a way of kind of everyone feeling like it's in it together. People feel very connected if they know they're going to participate in the profits. If everybody's an owner, that creates a caring that's pretty deep. Notice how Eileen frames this simple idea of employee ownership as being good not just for the employees, but for the company too. This enhanced feeling of participation is a key factor in building a company that lasts. 
Another idea that Eileen championed before it became widely accepted is sustainable fashion. In the early 90s, she started digging deeper into the impact that clothing production and distribution had on the environment and communities. I always thought that my concept of simple, timeless clothes that worked as a system was a sustainable idea. And I was a big fan of natural fibers. They go back to the earth, they're biodegradable, all of that. As Eileen learned more about sustainability, she wanted to lean in further. We committed to become a 100% sustainable company. We had no idea what we were talking about, but we were just going to do it. Eileen Fisher became one of the first fashion brands to take back used clothing from their customers. Under the company's Renew program, launched in 2009, many of these are donated, resold, or remade into new items. Then, in 2016, Eileen Fisher became certified as a B Corp, short for Benefit Corporation, demonstrating its commitment to balance profit and purpose. In this country, 83% of the clothes that are produced are discarded or incinerated within one year. Within one year. The waste is unbearable. We are using 69% less fabrics this year than in 2019 and half as many styles. I know we're not there yet, and I know we're trying. Part of getting us there is demonstrating how a simple idea, like reusing your clothes, can help contribute to the longevity of not only your wardrobe, but of the planet. I really want to show people that they can use the same shapes and same pieces in different ways. You're building a wardrobe that you can just add a few things. You don't have to throw everything away. You can make it fresh without having to recreate the whole thing every season. In the nearly 40 years since Eileen started her company, she strived to keep things simple without letting them stay the same. Now, as she prepares to transition out of the company, her focus is on the next iteration of Eileen Fisher. I've got to face the fact that, you know, I've been doing this for almost 40 years and I don't have 40 more years. <laughs> so I have to make sure it's safe, you know, and how do I do that? I mean, I always thought the idea had a lot of power. It could shift with the times. I always thought it would outlive me, but it's been a little bit hard trying to retire <laughs> and figure out what does it have to be to live without me. The challenge was finding someone who could keep simplicity at the heart of the product line while also keeping it fresh and relevant. In 2022, Eileen found that person. When Lisa showed up, I was really excited because she's from Patagonia, so that right away, just culturally and in terms of the sustainability work, I knew it was a good fit. That's Lisa Williams, formerly Chief Product Officer at Patagonia. She came out of leading product, and product always sort of leads the way at this company. In Lisa, Eileen found a leader who understood the simple idea at the core of the Eileen Fisher brand. She also knew how to carry that idea forward. So in 2022, Lisa came aboard as CEO. This has given Eileen time to focus on codifying how the company can keep coming back to simplicity without losing its vibrancy. I've been trying to work on what we call the blueprint for what are the core components of this design. Surprisingly, for what a simple idea, it's incredibly hard to sort of nail what is it and what is it that will make it live on without being rigid because it's a creative process and so it's a living thing. Like all great simple ideas, its simplicity 
hides its depth. And it's this depth that means Eileen and her successors can keep drawing fresh inspiration, whether that's for the product itself or for the wider aspirations of impacting the world for the better. How do we get this company fit for the future? So that whatever we're doing isn't damaging, so that we're actually creating a net positive effect on the people, right down through the supply chain, when the products are regenerating the world. How do we do that? Regenerative agriculture, that you can draw down carbon. Clean the water as we go when we're dyeing the clothes. It's possible to have a net positive. We're not there yet, but it's exciting. As we know too well, the ideas behind sustainability and social consciousness are deceptively simple. It's making those ideas a reality that's a complex challenge. But my strong belief is that business is one of the most powerful ways we can affect positive and lasting change for the world. I'm Reid Hoffman. Thanks for listening. And now, a final word from our brand partner, Capital One Business. Throughout the day, text messages and emails kept pouring in. Whatever you need, just let us know. We're back one more time with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was telling us about a Sunday morning email she fired off in a moment of panic. Minutes later, her inbox was overflowing. And the support she found wasn't just emotional, it was practical. We talked about detailed contingency plans and we created our go-to-market strategy. Before we are in full rollout mode, we had stage gates so that we could test and quickly learn and iterate. And within a matter of like six months, as we were rolling things out channel by channel, those stage gates would allow us to pivot if we saw something that we didn't like. That day, Aparna learned a lesson that stayed with her. Having multiple plan Bs doesn't just expand your options. It gives you new opportunities. The best way to pivot is actually open doors for thoughtful conversations because humility in knowing that you actually don't know everything as well as the empathy in knowing that disruption is always drastic and abrupt helps you go through that pivot with other people in a very different way. Capital One Business is proud to support entrepreneurs and leaders working to scale their impact from Fortune 500s to first-time business owners. For more resources to help drive your business forward, visit CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. That's CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. Masters of Scale is a Wait What original. Our executive producers are June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Chris McLeod. Our chief content officer and interim president is Lori Hoffman. Our producers are Chris Gautier, Adam Skuse, Alex Morris, Tucker Ligarski, and Masha Makochanina. Our editor-at-large is Bob Safian. Our music director is Ryan Holiday. Original music and sound design by Eduardo Rivera, Ryan Halliday, and Nate Kinsella. Audio editing by Keith J. Nelson, Stephen Davies, Stephen Wells, Andrew Nolt, and Liam Jenkins. Mixing and mastering by Aaron Bastinelli and Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Jodine Dorsey, Alfonso Bravo, Tim Cronin, Erica Flynn, Sarah Tarter, Katie Blazing, Ariel Carricker, Chineme Ezequena, Colin Howarth, Brandon Klein, Sammy Oputa, Kelsey Cezanne, Luisa Valles, Nikki Williams, and Justin Winslow. Visit mastersofscale.com to find the transcript for this episode and to subscribe to our email newsletter. 
become a member of Masters of Scale to get access to a year's worth of courses and content on the Masters of Scale courses app. Find out more at mastersofscale.com slash membership.